can uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms, uh, Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People. We've got uh, this Sunday and next Sunday are our last two psalms that we're going to be looking at. This morning we'll be in Psalm 139. <clears throat> so if you want to turn there, Psalm 139. Well, it's uh, no secret that I am a fan of podcasts. This is, this is generally known, right? Well known. Uh, and people give me recommendations, and I really appreciate it. So please keep doing that. So I'm going to give a, a shout out to Cecily, who's given me a couple of podcast recommendations recently. Uh, one is called Post Everything. Uh, it's two uh, pastors talking through uh, a whole lot of things, and it's, it's really super phenomenal, really helpful. Uh, and one of those in- interviews that they did was with an author named Steve Cuss. Uh, and Steve Cuss is a former pastor who has written uh, some books, and uh, his Twitter handle is Steve Cusswords, uh, which is just awesome, which is why he and I get along really well because of that. I, like, I'm like, this, is, this dude's awesome. He's really funny. He also has an Australian accent because he's originally from Australia, so it's like super easy to listen to, very fun. Um, so they, they did an interview with him about uh, his work surrounding anxiety. Uh, and then, actually, Cecily and I were talking about this episode, and she recommended his, his podcast, which is called Being Human with Steve Cuss. Uh, and it's, a, uh, it's a kind of a reboot of his old podcast, which was called Managing Leadership Anxiety. Um, and so there's four episodes out right now, so I listened to all four this week. Um, so I just want to give a, a shout-out to Cecily for that. Please give me more recommendations. Um, But also, uh, I want to give a shout out to Steve Cuss for that because in God's providence and timing, so much of this text deals with all of the things that he's talking about. So I'm going to give him credit. This is like the footnote for the sermon right here because I'm not going to quote him directly, but there's probably things, well, I may accidentally quote him. And so if you're listening to the podcast at some point, you may be like, oh, you stole that. No, 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 I'm giving credit right here. Just giving credit, just generally. He has been really helpful this week. And one of the things that has been really helpful, uh, he talks about us needing to be human size. What does it mean for us to be human size? To not try to be more than human size and to not accept anything less than human size. Uh, and as somebody who's pretty short, that's really helpful for me. Um, but uh, no, more, more thinking about uh, what it means to be human, uh, and in particular, surrounding our own anxious thoughts, which is really what this psalm deals with. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is the end of the psalm. We're going to start at the end of the psalm and then kind of work our way back. And, and you may be very familiar with this particular verse. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Now, I want to give a sort of disclaimer to how we're uh, understanding this anxiety and, and talking about anxious thoughts. Certainly, there are uh, chemical imbalances that some of us have that affect our anxiety. And there is medicine and doctors are helpful in uh, talking through those things and, get, and prescribing medicine for those things. And that is good and wonderful and we should praise God for those things. Um, and so I'm not talking about managing anxiety like that. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking about uh, 
us addressing our anxious thoughts. I'm not saying like, oh, all anxious thoughts can be addressed through these things that we're going to talk about this morning, and you don't need medicine. That's not what I'm saying, right? And so I'm not talking about that piece. I think that's really good. But even with that piece, we actually need more than that. Uh, Often those things give us sort of a baseline into which we can actually engage and do some work to deal with some of the things going on in our heart. So what I'm talking about this morning is really about how we react to the world around us. Uh, Steve Cuss actually calls, uh, he says anxiety is kind of a hard word because of some of those other pieces. He tends to use the word reactivity. It's how we react to things happening in the world, forgetting God and our place in the world. And so we're going to really ask the question this morning, what do I do with my anxious thoughts? What do I do with them? Now, this translation uh, for anxious thoughts, this word anxious thoughts, uh, right here, we're, gonna, we're trying some new things with the whiteboard this morning too, so hopefully it works. But this word right here, anxious thoughts, right? Some translations just call it thoughts. Uh, I think the NLT here, anxious thoughts, is really helpful and good. Uh, the word definitely comes with uh, troublesome thoughts, there's something troubling or vexing happening. And so anxious thoughts is a good word for it. Now, I was looking, well, one of the things I like to do when I'm looking at a word that, that maybe has some translation uh, question marks or, or is a, an interesting word, because the way in which we move things from Hebrew uh, in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament into English, they don't always translate one-to-one, right? Like you need phrases to kind of translate what this word is kind of doing. So if there's a tough word or a word that's, that's uh, really interesting, one of the things I like to do with the Hebrew is actually to look at the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So this is a translation that was used and, and was largely the regular Bible used in Jesus' day, right? Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word here is actually translated with a a word that means path or well-worn path. And it's a different word than this word path. This word path is the standard word used for path in Greek, but this word here is is different and it means well-worn path, which was really interesting. And I thought about that a little bit and I thought, I wonder if the New Testament, uh, let me get out of this, Uh, if the Old Testament translators knew something about how our brains work that that neuroscience is showing us today, but they kind of knew intuitively, which is that when things happen in our lives and we have these anxious thoughts, right? That's sort of this destination that we get to. But we get to it in a whole number of different ways, right? So there's some sort of trigger that happens that gets us to anxious thoughts. It might be an event. It might be uh, a word spoken by another person. It might be the news that we hear. It might be something we see on social media. It might be uh, an email we receive or a text we receive. And all of a sudden, there's this tightness in our chest or our thoughts start racing or our breath gets short and we feel a tension in our neck, right? 
All of these, kind of no matter where they go, they take this same well-worn path. Right? It's just always running through this same path. And so, when he says, test me and know my anxious thoughts, I think what the psalmist is saying here is, this is what happens. These things happen in my life, and I run in this way all the time. And the question is, how can God interrupt that? How can God help us to interrupt this pathway towards anxious thoughts, and can we go a different way? Can we go on a different path? That's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean for us to run on a different path? Go a different direction. And this path that we're going to do this, how we interrupt this, is we're going to pause, we're going to ponder, and we're going to pray. Now, if you listen to Steve Cuss's podcast, he uh, uses an alliteration at one point and then says, sorry, uh, it's like we're, we're preaching like we're in the 90s again. I felt personally offended by that. I use alliteration all the time. So, sorry. Apparently, that's an old thing to do. <laughs> I didn't know, uh, but I learned that this week. But, but we're going to pause, we're going to ponder, and we're going to pray. First, we're going to pause. In the midst of whatever's going on in which we are tempted to run this well-worn path to anxious thoughts, we're going to pause. This psalm itself, the psalm's function, like pauses in our lives. It's one of the things about the Scriptures and the countercultural way in which we view them in our modern world. By submitting ourselves regularly to time in God's Word, we're acknowledging that we don't know best. We're acknowledging that we don't know best. And what is the first thing you do when an anxious thought comes? What's the first thing that happens in your life when this anxious thought comes, when you're about to run down this path, right? I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it's usually I pull out my phone and I try and distract myself in some way. Just find some way to distract myself so I don't have to go towards this uncomfortable thought. Or, internally I yell at myself. Like there's something, why are you feeling this way again? Why? Like, just get over it. Right? There's something going on internally and we pull our phone, we distract ourselves, we, we run away from it. Now, how can you build a habit of pausing instead and remembering Scripture? How can we pause and remember Scripture in these moments? Well, that's only going to happen if we are spending time outside of those crisis moments in the Scriptures. Only if we are regularly teaching ourselves that we are not our own, we don't know best, and we need God's help. If we are regularly submitting ourselves to that, then, when something like this arises, we can pause and remember Scripture. We can pause. We can breathe. We can slow down, collect ourselves. Now, when we do that, when we pause, how do we actually fill that space? Okay? How do we actually fill that space? Well, we're going to spend a bulk of our time this morning in this center point on ponder. 
When we pause, we can ponder. I believe the path laid out for us in this psalm for addressing our anxious thoughts is to ponder two things. You are human. God is divine. And if we ponder those two things, we cannot confuse or change either of those realities. And actually, we will find the freedom when we embrace those realities. Now, it sounds simple and obvious, but actually, if we analyze how we function in the world, we confuse those things all the time. And so let's ponder this from this psalm. Starting in verse 1, O Lord, You have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to understand. The thing that the psalmist actually asks at the end, right? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. He actually has already declared that that's a true thing at the very beginning of the psalm. He's already declared it. God, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know everything. Not just my thoughts, but everything. Now remember, these two things that we're seeking to ponder, our humanity and God's divinity, this psalm showcases for us that God is infinite. That part of God's divinity is His infinite nature. These uh, theological terms uh, that start with the word omni, omnipresent, omnipowerful, or omnipotent, sorry, uh, and uh, omniscient. Meaning all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. These are on display in this psalm. He says, you know everything about me. You know everything about me. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You know my thoughts. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. That's all knowledge. All knowledge. Even the potential of what you're going to do, He already knows. He sees and knows where you're at. Whether you're traveling or at home. Whether you're sitting or standing. Everything about your life, He knows. He's all know. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. It gets scarier. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present in every space, and He is all-powerful. What's the reality for us? It's that we are finite. We do not have all knowledge. right? He has declared, God, You know everything about me. And then at the end, He asks, God, will You search me? Meaning, He's declaring, I don't know everything. I don't know everything. I am not able to be present everywhere, right? You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, meaning God knows when I'm traveling and when I'm at home, but I can only be in one of those places at a time. And I am not all-powerful. I need your blessing. 
You place your hand of blessing on my head. I am in need of your protection and your blessing. I am not powerful enough to make that happen on my own. Now, you may be thinking, well, that, that, those are all really obvious things. Thank you. I'm so glad that we uh, have you as our pastor and uh, you have to listen to podcasts to learn that you can't be in two places at once. But let's examine how we actually live our lives. Our modern world that we inhabit teaches us that these things are not true. You don't have all knowledge. Yeah, but I have Google, and it's got all knowledge. Like, I can, go, I can find any information I want right now. Right? I mean, I do this all the time. When, particularly in our household, usually some sort of sporting event is on the TV, and we are finding out some sort of statistic because it's so fascinating. And I can find it. I can find the most random statistic. If you need a job, apparently ESPN has way too many jobs because they always have statistics that are like so incredibly specific. Why? Because we want all knowledge. And I can get it. It's all available at my fingertips. What you have access to in terms of information, even 100 years ago, would never have been thought possible never have been thought possible. That you could know right now, you could do all sorts of research on anything you want to know in any part of the world. Not just, right, all knowledge, but all presence globally. So much of the anxiety that we experience in the world is because we are so connected globally that you now, not only do you hear about hard and sad and difficult things that are happening in this city, which there are plenty of every week. You also know what's happening on the other side of the globe in very difficult places that you would never have known about a hundred years ago. Or you would have known about weeks later. Not the moment it's happening. And because of how social media has connected us, I actually can learn about things happening live on the ground, somewhere else, before news media outlets have it on TV. That's crazy. And when we consume that all the time, we believe, we begin to believe that we can be present in every part of the world at the same time. That I can be here, sitting in this room, and actually be more present in some other distant part of the globe because I'm concerned or thinking about or knowing about intimate details about things on the other side of the globe. And it gives us this ability, because of social media, we have allowed, we've kind of removed all sort of gatekeepers to public knowledge and public, uh, the ability to, to, to say things that lots of people will see. So in removing those gatekeepers, there's a lot of good that has come from that and a lot of challenge that has come from that because what it does is it actually makes me believe I now know what's happening on the other side of the globe. I have that knowledge. I can sort of be present in that. And not only that, I can affect that by what I say about that event on social media or in some other space. And it actually removes my real 
very real burden and uh, uh, responsibility to affect and love my neighbor because I think I'm loving my neighbor by talking about my neighbor on the other side of the globe, which I have no power to actually change, but I'm convinced I do. Now, I'm not saying anything, uh, I'm not giving any sort of moral pronouncement on any of that stuff. I'm just saying that's the world we live in. And it affects how we think about ourselves. How we think about everything we process in life. This creates on us a burden that humans can't bear. It's a burden that humans can't bear. And I really think us bearing that burden is part of Satan's strategy. Because we think we can do more for the kingdom, so we end up actually doing nothing because we're so overwhelmed and dismayed. Right? We think we can do so much more, and we end up being so overwhelmed and dismayed that we actually end up not loving our neighbor who's across the street because we're trying to love our neighbor who's across the globe. Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to do things to love our neighbor across the globe. Certainly not. You know that that's not true of what we teach here, right? But what I'm saying is, sometimes we bear a burden that's not ours to bear, and we use that as an excuse to not bear the burden of our neighbor who's right next to us. And I think there's a freedom in embracing the reality that we are finite. We can only care about so many things. We can only do so many things. We can only know so much. We can only be present in one place. We can only travel or be at home. God can be present everywhere. God is powerful. And if we acknowledge that we are not God and can't act like God, there is real freedom because there is a real God who is all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful. But as soon as we acknowledge that, that's where it gets a little scary. Right, John? That's where it gets a little scary. If we acknowledge that we are not God and that there is a God and that He knows everything about us, even the things that we want to say that we didn't say before we said it. All of the things about our lives He knows. That's a little scary. Which is exactly where the psalmist goes. The psalmist says, maybe, yep. The psalmist says, I can never escape from Your Spirit. I can never get away from Your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask... Now, now, now part of this, right? There's two ways to read this. One is, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful, God, that you are present with me everywhere. But there also is another angle to this. Right? Because then he says, I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. See, even in my darkness, I cannot get away from you. 
This section of the psalm invites us as we pause and ponder to consider pondering, continue pondering the ever-present God who sees. But that makes us so often want to run and hide. And it's the same thing that we've been doing since the garden. Immediately after the fall, God, who had been with Adam and Eve, had been in their presence. They hear Him coming, and what do they do? They run and hide. The immediate instinct post-fall for humans when we know that God is present is to run and hide. Because we think we can run and hide. Because we know that we don't measure up. That we're not God and we cannot measure up to His glorious standards. And so not only do we run and hide, then what Adam and Eve do, right, is they make some fig leaves and they're like, okay, this will, okay, now we can come out. Which is exactly what we do, right? It's like, okay, well, I want to run and hide from God's presence because I know there are things in my life that don't square up with God's word. So Lord, hey, you know what? Rather than looking at that, will you look at this thing? Look over here. Look at this great thing I did. God, I checked off my Bible reading plan every day. Look at what I did. God, I have given money to the poor. I support this. I serve. I do all. So, so just don't look at that part. Let me hide in darkness over here. Look at this. But what the psalmist is saying is, even if I try and do that, God knows and sees and is present. He knows all. He is present. And what that causes for us is either real guilt, where we see that our life does not line up with God's law, or a low-grade shame, in which it's not a guilt, a specific thing in which God is pointing out, hey, this thing about your life is inconsistent with my word. This is not good for you. But a low-grade shame that just says, we're just bad. We're not good. We're wicked and evil. God actually hates us. His presence is not good. Even if I run away, it doesn't matter because He's going to find me and He hates me. This low-grade shame that we walk with. So, so, the question then is, okay, if that's what this thing produces, if we think about God's all-knowing presence everywhere, and it produces in us a desire to run away or a low-grade shame, why are you telling us to ponder that? Because that doesn't sound good. That means more anxious thoughts. I thought we were trying to deal with anxious thoughts. Why are you telling me to ponder this thing that makes me really scared? Well, the psalmist says you can't avoid it. Even if you try, you can't avoid it. God is present everywhere, always, seeing and knowing all. The question is, will you be aware of it? Because you cannot hide from it. And if we ponder it and go a little deeper, I think we'll find our answer. We need to go a little deeper and not just stay on this surface level of God is present everywhere and that makes me feel really scared. We're going to delve a little deeper. Psalmist goes on to say this. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. 
Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in under seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. We ponder all of this because in doing so, we recognize not only that we are human and not divine, but that the, the divine God Himself has shaped us, created us, and loves us. We have to ponder more deeply because our initial pondering of God's presence comes with guilt and shame, and we have to ponder more deeply to know that His presence is kind and loving. Our pondering of God has to go deeper, that we are created and He is Creator, both utterly unique. God is utterly unique in that He is the Creator of all things. And you are utterly unique in that you are created in God's image. You are one of a kind. All humans are made in God's image. All humans are made in God's image. Valuable and precious from the womb to the tomb. Certainly, this psalm affects all sorts of, uh, of our views on all sorts of ethical issues, but that's not the focus of this message or even of this psalm. It's true, and it's a truth found here, but it's not the focus of this. However, I think actually very important that the best way to get to that place of understanding how this idea affects ethical issues is taking the path of this psalm and recognizing that you're not human and that God is or that you are human and that God is God that you are not God we need to ponder our limited nature as creatures and God's glory as creator what does this mean for us well if God is creator and we are created it means that he knows what is best what did it say? Your workmanship is well known. It's glorious. You knew what you were doing when you made the world and when you made me. It means that he has the final say in all things. Because he's God and creator and you are created by him. And it means that he has given us incredible gifts. We are wondrously made. Humans are wondrously made. Glorious. A human infant is so incredibly vulnerable and weak and yet has potential greater than almost anything in the universe. So unique, so powerful, so much potential, even in the womb. Now how does this pondering help our anxious thoughts? Well, you're not an accident. So often when something happens in our life that causes us to respond in anxiety, we believe that there's some sort of mistake that has happened, that God made a mistake when He made us, like He was doing a pretty good job with some other folks, but when He got to us, He made a big mistake. There's these things about us that make us feel that way. 
but pondering that God knew what He was doing with us before we were created means that you're not just a random collection of matter fighting for meaning and purpose. You are created, shaped even, by a God who loves you. Not just created, but loved. One of the things that we need to ponder is that God, if He is God and we are not, and we are human, is that we are made in His image. But He didn't have to do that. Ponder this. God did not have to. God created all sorts of glorious things, right? I mean, you just go outside and look. Nature is incredible. There are glorious things all over the place. There are creatures which are glorious and super weird and unique. And there are details in flowers that are so glorious and then go away. Every individual snowflake, gone. Incredible detail, gone. Right? Glorious mountains. I mean, all of these things are amazing. Not a single one of them is stamped with the image of God. But you are. You are. When God decided to create humans, He didn't just create creatures that would praise Him. He said, these ones will be like Me. These ones will reflect Me. Not just the idea generally that humans are made in God's image. Not just some random humans, but these humans in this room. Look around. Look at your neighbor. They're made in God's image. There is something unique about them that displays and reflects the glory of God that would not be on display if they were not here. They are stamped with the very image of God. You are stamped with the very image of God. And not just that. God has numerous and wonderful thoughts about you. What, what does the psalmist say? It says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. Not how precious are my thoughts about you, O God. How precious are your thoughts about me. God has thoughts about you. He created you. He loves you. It is hilarious when you really think about it. I mean, it's absurd. The God of the universe who can see and know all things, be present everywhere, has so many thoughts about you that it outnumbers the sand on the shore or in the desert. The individual grains of sand. You cannot count how many wonderful thoughts God has about you. What would it look like in your life if when you were hit with anxious thoughts about your finances, your relationships, your job, that question nagging, does that person like me? Did I say something that made them upset? Did I mess that thing up? 
Why do I keep sinning in that way? Why am I experiencing so much suffering? What am I supposed to do? And just beginning to race through these things, what would change in those moments if you paused and you pondered that right now, the holy, all-consuming fire that is our glorious triune God has more thoughts about you right now than the sand on the shore of the beach or the sand in the desert. More individual thoughts than the number of sand. And loving thoughts. Not just thoughts. Loving thoughts. You are not alone. Oh friends, why do we choose to play God when we can be human and be loved by God instead? That's the pathway. The pathway to dealing with anxious thoughts is not to try to play God to fix things, but to recognize and be human and be loved by a God who has more thoughts about you than the number of sand in the desert. We don't need all knowledge or all power to be present everywhere. We have a God who knows our days and has laid them out for us in sovereign, loving care. And not just as he laid our days out and knows them and plans them, he knows and adores and loves us. You know, I do a lot of handiwork uh, around our house or, or next door. And if you ask my wife, we would accomplish way more projects. Uh, she's in the nursery now, so you can ask her after service. But uh, we would accomplish way more projects if uh, me and, and Chris, when Chris is working with me or, or anyone who's helping me out, uh, would not stop so often to admire our work. Anytime it's like, oh, I just finished this thing. Come, come look at it. Come look at it. Look at that. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Right? I need that. I need that prompting. But that stopping and admiring our work, that's what God does far more constantly with you. Anytime he gets a chance, which, according to the psalmist, is always, because he's always watching you, he just steps back and says, man, that one right there. I love that one. Like, universe, come look. Come look what I made. Look at this one. He does that for every one of you. Every single one of you, even in the midst of your anxious thoughts, even in the midst of you pretending to be God and thinking that you can control things and are more powerful and running away from Him, even when you're saying, darkness, hide me so that God won't be near you, He is saying to the universe, come look at my child that I made. Come look at this one. This one right here. Come look at it. They're wonderful. They reflect my image. They're glorious. Now why doesn't the world embrace this? Why don't we embrace this? Well, this, the song takes kind of a weird turn that we're, we're going to deal with here. And, and I think it, it helps explain this question. If this is so good, why don't we do it? Psalmist goes on to say, Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. 
Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Every once in a while, when I'm reading the scriptures, I just think, did you just like pause for a moment and walk away and then come back with a totally different perspective here? Like, what's going on? Like, you, you just, that's a sharp left turn there. We're not going to deal with the imprecatory nature of this because we did that all last week. So if you want to know what I think about imprecatory psalms or how we should uh, deal with those, that is uh, the sermon's on the website. We're not going to go into all of those things again. Please listen to that. The only thing I'll say here is that David does seem, certainly seems to say something here that goes counter as to what Jesus would say about loving our enemies. Remember, this is a psalm written by David Yes, given to us in Scripture by God, but it does not come with an annotation on the side in which God says, yep, check, that's the way to do it. Hate your enemies. Because it says it right here. Right? That's not what it says. That's not how imprecatory psalms work, and we talked all about that last week, right? So, so it's, it's not God saying, yes, you should hate your enemies. Certainly, we need to obey the actual command of Jesus to love our enemies. This is... David's response to things happening in his life, right? And things that he is praying to God, not actions that he is taking. We talked all about that last week. But the point that I want to draw out here is everything in this, this last section that we just talked about seems so good. Why don't we just do it? Well, the problem is that humans are wicked. That's the problem. Right? Exactly. John's right. We are the enemy. Exactly. David, who wrote this psalm, is at various points in his life the enemy of God. Right? When Nathan the prophet comes to him and shares this parable, David says, that man is wicked. Bring him to me so I can kill him. And he says, you're that man. David's like, oh, well, okay, maybe change of plans here. Right? <laughs> this is the problem. The problem is that in our brokenness and in our sin, in our wickedness, we run from God and we are enemies of Him. God, the Creator, is divine and holy. Humans are created, limited but loved, but also fallen and unholy and wicked. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? How can we have peace or experience the glorious intimacy with God that we just talked about, His glorious presence, what do we do with that if we find ourselves to be the wicked ones? Well, in the book of Job, Job kind of asks this very question. He says, God is not immoral like me, so I can't argue with Him or take Him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together, the mediator could make God stop beating me and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. Everything that we have talked about, about God's glorious presence, his all-knowing presence, he's also holy and an all-consuming fire. Right? You see these, there's these stories in the Old Testament about right, uh, when they're carrying the ark and it's falling, and a guy goes out to grab it, right, and dies. It's like, well, the ark was falling. That seems like a good thing. Pick it up. Except for the fact that God is incredibly holy, 
and we are not. It's a story to remind us we can't just willy-nilly walk into the presence of God. He is holy. But wait a second, you said He loves me and He thinks about me in all these glorious ways and He's present everywhere. Which one is it? Pick! We don't have to pick. Because the thing that Job cries out for, we have. 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. You see, we can actually ponder something a little deeper. Yes, we are human. Yes, God is divine, but oh, there is good news. God the divine stepped into history to become human, to redeem and save. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die, and only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made in every respect like us, His brothers and sisters. In every respect like us. So that He could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then He could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since He Himself has gone through suffering and testing, He is able to help us when we are being tested. This is the glorious coming together of the human and the divine in the God-man, Jesus Christ. You want to know what to do with your anxious thoughts? Let's go deep. Let's go deep in some insane theological mystery. The incarnation of the Son of God. The glorious taking on of human flesh. Coming close, not staying far away. Right, this is why the, the stuff that Hunter shared about Tertullian is so important for us. Is If we don't have a grasp of who God is, that He is triune, that He is Father, Son, and Spirit, when we know God's presence, we will forget that God has come in the person of His Son to meet us. To take on our humanity. To know what it is to not know where I'm getting my next meal. To know what it is to suffer through life and to know the reality of how, in, how the world operates and natural disasters and cold and warm and sleep and achiness and all of the things that we experience in life that lead us towards anxious thoughts. Jesus knows. It's not just that we say, well, okay, God, we get that you are present everywhere and that you have wonderful thoughts about us, but you can do whatever you want. How does that help me know that you know me? Jesus has experienced all of it. God has experienced it. You see, these loving thoughts that the Creator has about us are not just faraway good ideas. They motivate Him to come and to love. 
to show up in mighty ways and to take on all our sin, our rebellion, our wickedness, to crush sin, Satan, and death by enduring it for us. You see, anxious thoughts which all of us experience, whether you're a Christian or not, are an opportunity to ponder the reality of your humanity and how you're frail. And yet, how Jesus has come to take on that frailness for you. How He came to take on all of your guilt. To cover all of your shame. To die in the place in which we deserve to die because of our wickedness and running from God so that we can be welcomed into the presence of God without fear. The book of Hebrews Right? This is in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, and it is working this theme out throughout the whole of the book, and it says these crazy things, like we go boldly into the presence, into the throne room of God. You remember when we were in Exodus and walked through how they built the tabernacle and all the details? No one just boldly walks in there. We boldly walk in because Jesus has covered us in His blood. Because Jesus has paid the final sacrifice, there is no more bloodshed in the kingdom of God for sins. There is no more. Jesus has clothed us with His righteousness. Now we walk into the presence of God boldly and we do so knowing that He knows us, that He sees us, that He loves us. And so if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you are plagued by the reality of being human in this world and you have tried all of the ways in which our modern world has given you access to trying to play to be God, stop trying to play to be God. Recognize your humanity and know that there is a God and His name is Jesus and He loves you. And come to Him. Cling to Him. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with pausing in the midst of anxious thoughts, when our brain takes this well-worn path that we have of anxious thoughts, we pause, we ponder these realities, and then we pray with the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. The way this psalm ends is so encouraging. If we have pondered well, we are now asking. What this psalm is asking, right? What, what the psalmist is asking is to say, God, you know all things about me. Will you reveal a little bit of your knowledge about me to me so that I can know you more? That's what he's asking. What he's asking is to say, God, you know us better than anyone. Will you give us just a little window into how you know us so that we can then respond and know you more? Right At the beginning of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, he talks about the reality that to know God, you have to know self. And to know self, you have to know God. This pathway of knowing ourselves and knowing God, they come together. And what the psalmist is saying, in the midst of a situation in which you are moving towards anxious thoughts, you want to pause 
interrupt that. You want to ponder the reality of who God is, and then you're going to pray and ask God, God, in light of who you are, will you reveal just a little bit about who I am to me so that I can know you more? We ponder. Now, why do we need to pray that? Well, well, because Jeremiah tells us the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is, right? You're like, okay, that sounds awesome, except usually when I ask God, and when I look in my heart, it's not real nice in there. And I don't know whether to trust it or not. Well, that's why we're asking God. It's why we're asking God to show up. We can't just stop with pausing and pondering. We may come away with the wrong takeaway. We need to pray for God's illumination. And when we pray for God's illumination, what do we do when when He shows up? What's the thing that we run to? In this prayer, where are we going? What are we asking God to do? Well, if you remember, we we spent some time in uh, Image of God, Imago Dei series a while back. And there were three things that God can sort of point out for us often and three different tools that we can use for our response. And we need to understand what those things are so that we're not using the wrong tool to respond to the wrong thing. Search me, O God, and know my heart's Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out in me anything that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Anything that offends you, that's sin. We're asking God to point out sin in our lives. Anything that offends you. Now, that's a specific thing, right? So if we ask God for that and we come back with this like, well, you're pretty wicked. Well, that probably wasn't what God was revealing. Because that's just general nonsense, right? Like, how do I respond to that? Thank you, I'm pretty wicked. Knew that one. If God responds with, hey, the way that you talk about your neighbor to your spouse, that's wicked. Oh, that's specific. What do I do with that? I repent. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path to everlasting life. I have a tool for that. Repentance. God has already forgiven me. All I got to do is repent. That's glorious. I can repent of it and trust the gospel. The, the other thing that God might... So that's sin, right? So if God points out sin, we repent. If God points out brokenness, what do we do? Test my anxious thoughts. Test my anxious thoughts. But our anxious thoughts aren't always sinful. They might be. But more often, they're just kind of the reality of living in a fallen world. That's brokenness. What do we do when we experience brokenness? When God shows us brokenness? We have a tool for that too. It's called lament. It's what we talked about last week. We lament the brokenness of the world. We can lament. If God points out brokenness, we lament. Finally, God may point out our limits. You search, God, because I have limits. I can't search my own heart. You know, God, because I can't know my heart. I have limits. And so, God, when you search out my heart, you may point out to me that I have limits. And what I do with limits is I embrace them. I embrace them. So when we have anxious thoughts, sometimes our anxious thoughts will bring about an occasion for repentance. 
Sometimes they'll bring about an occasion where the Lord points out if we will follow this path, if we will pause, if we will ponder that we are not God, that He is God, and that He loves us, and we say, God, search me. Sometimes He will point out your anxious thoughts are related to the fact that you don't trust me. You don't trust me. Okay, I can repent of that. Sometimes the anxious thoughts, God will reveal, this world is broken. Your heart is broken. Things are really hard and you're suffering. Cry out to me. Lament to me. Sometimes that's what God will point out. And sometimes God will point out, I know that you're anxious about this. That's because you're trying to be God. You should take a nap. You should take a nap. Also, you haven't eaten. Go eat. Right? Like, you're a creature. You can't do all things. Embrace your limits. Because you will know me and love me more if you embrace your limits as a human and stop trying to be God. So sometimes we'll repent, sometimes we'll lament, and sometimes we will embrace our limits. Well, how will we know? How will we know which we're supposed to do? Give us an answer, Pastor. Like, which one is it? Well, I'm not God. When the psalmist says, search me, God, he is not saying, okay, there's a book that you open up, and uh, it's like your car manual, right? Oh, this light. What does this light mean? Okay, let's go find it, right? He's talking to a person. I'm not that person. You want to know what to do? Ask him. He's there. Ask him. The point of this psalm is to say, we have a loving God. You don't have to have all the answers. And because he loves you and knows every one of your days, guess what? You're probably going to get it wrong. Maybe a lot. But he loves you. He knows you. Embrace it and run to him and see what he says. Let's see what he says. I think it's going to be one of these things. He's either going to call us to repentance, he's going to call us to lament, or he's going to call us to embracing our limits. But the only way we're going to know that is if we spend time with him. Meditating in his word, praying, and then asking him. And listening. So let's do that, okay? Let's do that when we have anxious thoughts. Let's pause, let's ponder, and let's ask God to show up. Let's pray now. Father God, we come to you and we ask that you would know us, that you would search us, that you would test us, that you would know our anxious thoughts, that you would point out anything in us that offends you, and that you would lead us along the path of everlasting life. Jesus, we need you to do that, and we know that you are good and want to lead us into your loving arms, and so Lord, we need you, and we ask that you would show up and be honored and glorified, and Lord, that we would know more of you. Grant that to us, Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.